Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Life and Times of Canadian Political Philosopher C.B. McPherson. On September the 30th, 1987, while the organ played a Bach chorale, a crowd slowly gathered in the University of Toronto's Convocation Hall. Two months after his death, they had come to pay tribute to a teacher, a colleague, a friend and a man who had made a difference in the field of political philosophy. The University of Toronto has a great many individuals who make enormous contributions to the university, to academe, and to the nation. But there are some whose contributions have been so outstanding that we must recognize them. We must pause in our daily lives and reflect on what they have done and on the meaning of these accomplishments. Today, we honor one of these very special few, Crawford Bruff McPherson. He began his career Bruff here Bruff McPherson taught at the University of Toronto for over 40 years. During those years, he achieved a worldwide reputation for his contributions to political theory. In his writings, McPherson challenged the free market ethic. He called for a new society based on the fulfillment of human potential rather than the acquisition of private possessions. He claimed that such a society could only come into existence through a fusion of socialism and liberalism, the liberal tradition of individual rights and freedoms grafted to the socialist ideal of full human equality. McPherson's ideas brought him wide acclaim, but he always remained rooted in his own university. He was a committed and compelling teacher, and he was devoted to the liberal ideal of the university as a civilized community. His colleague, Peter Russell, recalled this civility at the memorial service. He was, in the best sense of the term, a, a very civil person, truly a gentle man. I can still see in my mind's eye, and I'll bet many of you can too, that twinkle in his eye, that warm, somewhat sly smile. It was like the sun. I remember one day, in particular, when that sun shone on me. I had reviewed a book he had written. It was called The Political Theory of Possessive Individualism. On the morning the review appeared, I, as a rather raw rookie, was in some trepidation of how my illustrious colleague might respond. But when he poked his head in my office, he smiled, said he enjoyed the review, thought it was quite a good review, though wrong, it's fundamental point. And so we talked for half an hour or so, neither conceding very much to the other, but both enjoying the exchange. Now that's the mark of a civilized community of scholars, and a practice as essential as it is difficult to maintain among men and women who may have such different points of view on the human condition. Civility, intelligence, integrity. These were the qualities that won Bruff McPherson the love and admiration of his students, colleagues, and friends. Tonight on Ideas, we pay tribute to C.B. McPherson with the first of two programs on his life and work. The series will continue tomorrow night. It's written and presented by David Cayley. 
few weeks ago, I asked our CBC archives for a list of their holdings on C.B. McPherson. I expected to get back a fairly substantial document, comparable to what one would find for Marshall McLuhan, say, or George Grant. Instead, I received a single page with three entries. For McLuhan, there are nearly a hundred. Within the field of political theory, C.B. McPherson is a name to conjure with. Outside it, it seems, he is very little known, especially in Canada. When he died in July 1987, the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star both ran obituaries by writers who seemed quite unaware of the nature of his achievement. The Toronto Sun, in a way, did him more justice by attacking his socialism. But among those who are aware of his work, there are many who consider Bruff McPherson to have been an intellectual giant, a thinker of unusual clarity and integrity who set a whole new style in political thought. One of his greatest admirers is federal NDP leader Ed Broadbent, a student of McPherson's in the 60s. I deeply believe that he is one of the great thinkers in the democratic tradition. Not great Canadian thinkers, but great thinkers in the democratic tradition, uh, stretching from Marx and Mill up to the present. There are very few, if we're a busy, intellectually oriented person, people that one need to read. But Bruff McPherson is one of those people that one needs to read because he added to Marx, he added to Mill. He, he saw certain things that they didn't see as certain as a person who comes later, came later, and gave great intellectual rigor to developing the requirements of an adequate democratic theory. He was a great thinker. It's not possible for a Canadian scholar going to an international conference not to be asked almost right away, oh, did you know C.B. McPherson? He's one of the really few social and political theorists that Canada has produced with this kind of international impact and reputation. This is Frank Cunningham, the head of the philosophy department at the University of Toronto. I've had the opportunity in the last few years uh, twice to attend uh, international conferences on democracy held in Santiago in Chile. And what surprised me and pleased me quite a bit the first time I went was I thought I would introduce the ideas of McPherson to the Chileans. I would be interested to know their responses. Uh, only to find out that they knew some of them quite a bit more about his works than I did. Uh, his works are translated into Spanish. He has an enormous reputation amongst Chilean scholars, and especially critics of the uh, military dictatorship. Latin America is an area where McPherson has a particular appeal, but he is also well known in Europe and Japan. Frank Cunningham thinks that the reason for this popularity is that McPherson pointed a way beyond the dilemma which has dominated political thought for the last century. McPherson was a socialist. His attack on property conceived of as something that enables you to prevent other people from developing their full potentials, something that you possess and exclude other people from. His notion of possessive individualism as the political culture, where, as he puts it rather nicely, people are more concerned with having than with doing. Uh, all of that constitutes one of the truly strong and incisive critiques of capitalist society. 
On the other hand, uh, what McPherson was able to accomplish that very few other socialists have been able to accomplish was to perceive within capitalist societies some things of value that must be retained, or as he puts it, retrieved. And in particular, uh, what he wanted to retrieve were, were certain of the values of liberal democracy. Now, to a lot of people, that's like trying to square the circle. You just can't do it. You either opt for socialism, and then you're going to have to forgo both the individual and democracy, or you opt for capitalism, and whatever its failings, at least you get liberal democracy out of it. McPherson's brilliant insight and his the strength of his argument and the reason for his popularity was that he showed, showed us how we could have it uh, both ways. McPherson believed that this utopian possibility of a society both free and egalitarian now existed. Like Karl Marx, he believed that capitalism was the precondition for a new kind of society, that when capitalism reached a certain level of productivity, it would be able to shed its original political culture, the political culture he called possessive individualism. Previous political philosophers had justified possessive individualism on the grounds that goods were scarce and human desires unlimited. But McPherson argued that technological progress had undermined this justification. This was how he himself put the point in his 1965 Massey lectures for the CBC, The Real World of Democracy. We can begin to recognize now that the vision of scarcity in relation to unlimited desire was a creation of the capitalist market society. Certainly, before the advent of that society, nobody assumed that unlimited desire was the natural and proper attribute of the human being. You do not find it in Aristotle or in St. Thomas Aquinas. You begin to find it only with the rise of the capitalist market society in the 17th century, in Hobbes and in Locke. Scarcity was set up as the condition whose conquest was to be the great object of human endeavor. But this was only done when the emerging capitalist market society needed it as an organizing principle. An all-pervasive awareness of scarcity was needed, both to justify the operations of those who came out at the top and to motivate those who stayed below and had to be made to work harder than they had ever worked before. We don't need this dominant concept of scarcity any longer. We don't need any longer the morality which gives pride of place to the motive of acquisition. In at least the most advanced capitalist countries, we produce already more commodities and more new capital than we know what to do with. And in the very near future, our problem will be not to get people to work, but to find something for them to do not to make the most efficient use of scarce means, but to start repairing the scarcity of the human values that have been submerged in the struggle against material scarcity. McPherson called for nothing less than a new conception of human nature, a conception that would emphasize self-development. Traditional liberal theory had conceived of human abilities as private possessions which could be used to acquire goods potentials would be developed as the market dictated. McPherson, on the other hand, saw the development of human potential as an end in itself. To make this end a means of getting money or gaining power was a perversion of human nature. Charles Taylor, 
is a professor of political science at McGill University in Montreal and an internationally known political theorist himself. He wanted to propose new ways of seeing human beings and new political theories that went along connected with that, which would allow us, in his view, to go beyond this age, the age really of capitalist civilization, with all its advantages of growth and production on one hand and disadvantages of injustice and, he, as he thought, it real repression, suppression of human potentiality on the other. So he was looking forward to a kind of civilization in which we would have a richer and fuller democracy, a democracy of, of participation, which would not be centrally based on market and market relations, which take people as individuals possessing themselves, their powers, and trading in them, as it were, but would, in a sense, take people as possessors of their powers in a fuller sense, where they would get the full benefit of and the full capacity to develop their powers, which he thought in capital civilization people didn't. McPherson's critique of capitalism was in no sense original. What was original was his proposed solution, a form of socialism which would remain connected to the liberal tradition. So he took the terms of classical liberalism, says Charles Taylor, and he transposed them into a new key. For example, the idea of property. Instead of seeing property as the exclusive right that I have to the things that I own, excluding other people, if you like, an excluding notion of property, he wanted to, he proposed at one point a conception of property as the right to access to what I need to develop my potentialities. So in other words, he's taking this classical term from the earlier liberalism, from the liberalism of individualism and possessive individualism, and instead of scrapping it, which is what most people have done in the socialist tradition, he wanted to retain it, because he wanted to retain that sense of the right to something, the very strong sense of rights, and instead give it a different interpretation so that it could be retained. This attempt to retain certain aspects of liberalism was the key to McPherson's originality as a Marxist thinker. Whether he really was a Marxist was sometimes debated in academic journals, but it is certainly true that the writings of Marx were the foundations on which he built. He shared Marx's view of history and Marx's account of the alienation of labor. But his Marxism, if such it was, always had a critical difference. People who thought of McPherson Simney as a Marxist were always uh, completely baffled when they actually read him because of this very important feature of his theory, that he tried to rethink the whole issue of the rise of capitalism and the move, if you like, forward to another kind of way of life, a socialist, you could call it, way of life. He tried to think of it in a set of concepts which were the central concepts of, if you like, bourgeois liberalism transposed. The point of using a concept like property and not scrapping it, right, the way the way Marx did. One of the most important political points of this, if you might put it, is that it retains as central the liberal discourse about rights, which of course classical Marxism doesn't, because they thought that the individual would, in the course of things, be fully satisfied by the very subsumption into a new community of a class of society, and it didn't need to have any defense of individual rights. And of course, nothing could be wronger, as we can see by the experience and history of, of Marxist-Leninist societies. And so the, the idea of a new kind of thought of socialism, a new kind of thought of going beyond capitalism, which incorporated this very important element of the rights of the individual, the centering on the well-being of the individual, 
was really the great contribution that Robert McPherson was making. So in that way, he builds on Marxism. There's no question about that. Without Marxism, he wouldn't have had the thought of someone like Robert McPherson. It presupposes Marxism. In another way, he makes a very, very far-reaching revision in it. You might say a whole sort of change of key and puts it in his own terms. Prof. McPherson was born and grew up in Toronto. His mother was a music teacher. His father taught at the Ontario College of Education. Their summers were spent at a family cottage in the Thousand Islands near Gananoque. Prof. attended the University of Toronto schools and then the University of Toronto. There he gravitated to the students and faculty with artistic and political interests. He was introduced to the writings of Marx and he was one of the founders of the Association for the Appreciation of Music, which met to listen to records. Music, especially the music of Bach, would remain a dominating passion for the rest of his life. In 1933, McPherson graduated from the University of Toronto and went off to England to study at the London School of Economics. He found England familiar. Some of the people and places have been so like what I expected, he wrote in his diary, that they seem almost like burlesques of themselves. The social background to his studies was a deepening depression. Irene Spry is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa. She was a colleague and friend of McPherson's, and she thinks that the depression must have affected him as it affected everyone who went through it. I mean, here were millions of people unemployed. Here were people starving and going ragged and going cold. Uh, and yet there was food going to waste because uh, nobody could afford to buy it. And you had surpluses of grain, surpluses of milk being thrown away. I mean, there, there was a, it, it was just repugnant to common sense. And this had to be a part of the background uh, of anybody in the social sciences who was trying to find out what was happening and why it was happening. And I'm sure this must have been part of Ruff's background. It couldn't have possibly have helped being part of his background. London also exposed Bruff to the shifting political currents of the 30s. He noted the danger of fascism in England. He met German emigre Franz Neumann who argued that revolution was the only way to create socialism. He wrestled with this view in his diary. Was it true for England as well, or just for Germany? Sometimes he wondered about the strength of his own commitment. But McPherson was definitely on the left, and had been since his undergraduate days. I would be willing to give up considerable monetary advantages, he wrote to his more conventional brother Brody, for the privilege of ceasing to live in a sick and shoddy civilization like today's. He was a socialist, he said, because he had been seized with a sense of the injustice of the system. His longtime friend and University of Toronto colleague Ursula Franklin thinks that it was a sense that stayed with him. I think that Brof McPherson had an ingrained and profound sense of justice. And all he's written 
about democracy, about all the factors of how a human community organizes its life, its law, its economics, I think had behind it this profound sense of justice and that things were measured, not whether they were successful, whether they were appropriate, efficient, but in the end, did they contribute to justice? And justice for him meant not uniformity, but equality in caring, equality in the real opportunity to be for all human beings to be regarded again with respect and measured by the same standards. The idea of justice as equality, not uniformity, finds an echo in another of McPherson's letters to his brother from London. Socialism, he says, is not intended to put people on a level. It is to remove the system which prevents people from finding their own level. But McPherson's London years were not entirely taken up with political concerns. There was also music, a virtual feast of music, a recital by Dame Myra Hess left him breathless with excitement. And there were the second-hand bookstores. I'm still as helpless in a bookshop as ever, he records. He also found time to travel in France, Spain, and Italy. His diaries, written in a fine, spidery hand, record his keen aesthetic pleasure in the landscapes, the architecture, and the food. Years later, he would propose that enjoyment, not ownership, was what human beings needed to be assured of. McPherson arrived back in Canada in 1935 and took up a position in the Department of Political Economy at the University of Toronto. Except for a brief leave during the war, he would remain a member of that department until his retirement. One of his colleagues in 1935 was the great Canadian political economist Harold Adams Innes. Another was Irene Spry. It was very, very lively, and we used to meet twice a day over cups of tea in the morning and in the afternoon, and I never remember any such meeting that there wasn't some stirring debate going on about some problem that somebody had been struggling with. Everybody whetted everybody else's mind, and uh, there was a real sense of cooperative discovery. And it was into this background that Buff came. And, of course, Harold Innes was the, the very creative, original member of uh, the, the department, concentrating on Canadian studies and in personal conversation with him in stimulating intellectual contacts, you, you got the, not only the impression that this was real discovery going on, but you also got a very strong impression of how great the responsibility of a scholar or would-be scholar was. I think indeed Bluff's mindset in many ways, his, his deep scholarly commitment, may in part be traced to Innes's influence. This scholarly commitment by itself would not have marked Bruff McPherson out from many of his colleagues. But the fact that he was a socialist did. 
and it was his ability to combine these commitments, scholarly and political, that gave him his true distinction. In England, such a combination was not so unusual. Contemporaries of Macpherson's, like E.P. Thompson, Christopher Hill, and Eric Hobsbawm, all managed it. In Canada, there was really no precedent. Political scientist William Leese is the author of a forthcoming intellectual biography of Macpherson. There were very few people like Macpherson um, in universities, especially in Canada, but in the U.S. as well, at that time. Uh, you did not prosper in universities with that ideological position. You, but you didn't usually go into universities if you had... After all, if you were, you were part of the mission, you figured you might be organizing the working class or something like that. It would be better use of your time than giving lectures in universities and writing and spending your time writing articles for academic publications with a circulation that was, first of all, minimal and secondly, not directed at those who were going to affect social change. It would have been a waste of time unless you were as deeply committed to academic life as you were to your ideological position. And I think that's what McPherson was. Bill Lease bases his argument on an essay called The Position of Political Science, published in 1942. In this essay, McPherson poses himself the question, what should be the political scientist's attitude towards the political and social reality he tries to analyze? He answers, that although the thinker must not be stampeded by events, he can be, at the same time, a scholar and a protagonist of political philosophy, demanding change. He goes on to note that many of the classic political philosophers, Smith and Bentham, Burke and Marx, were also pamphleteers. He's willing to state, sometimes in a muted form, but uh, quite soon he states quite openly his his ideological position, usually obliquely, usually as a reference made in making some point about some thinker he's discussing, but it's there and unmistakable. And on the other hand, he says already as a very young scholar, he's only in his late 20s, that he wants to make an impact on his profession. He did accept it as a mission to try, in one form or another, to get that point of view um, what we can call a, a socialist perspective, in short, accepted as a legitimate part of the range of opinion in university life. I believe that he was conscious of that in some sense, and that he carried it out with a kind of determination and dedication and long-range perspective that is truly remarkable. Macpherson changed the nature of the social sciences in Canada. If you compare the range of standpoint, ideological standpoint, is accepted as legitimate in university practice and university publication when he started and now. That range is much wider now. Uh, I think that is a positive development and that it contributes to a, a rational form of social discourse and that there are ideas that are not forbidden, uh, that we owe a great part of that to McPherson, and that is the important part of his legacy. In 1941, Brough McPherson was lent to the University of New Brunswick at Fredericton to bolster a war-depleted faculty. 
He taught there for a year, and it was during that year that he met his wife, Kay, later active in the peace movement through the voice of women, then a physiotherapist who had come out from England in the 30s. I was working with uh, three or four other women on the polio epidemic that was, we still had those in those days, and we were invited to go and listen to chamber music on records of Brough's and this was in the days when you sharpened a thorn needle to, um, uh, to play your records, and it was all very precious and so forth. Well, I stuck it out more than they, the others couldn't, uh, couldn't take sitting in silence for too many hours, and I managed to take some knitting along or something, which broke it. So we um, started, we usually said that we got married. I, I married him for his records, and he married me for the car, which I, I had a a little Ford with a rumble seat in it in those days. Kay and Bruff were married in 1943 and established their first home in Ottawa, where Bruff had taken a job as assistant to John Grierson at the Wartime Information Board. Grierson had attracted to the board a group of bright, socially concerned people, most of them on the political left. The next year, the McPhersons returned to Toronto and Bruff returned to teaching at U of T. It was there, two years later, that they learned that several of their Ottawa friends had been detained on suspicion of spying for the Soviet Union. The CBC broke the story from London. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC, speaking from London. Here in London today, almost everybody's interested in the big spy story from Canada. There's a wild flood of wild rumors coming over the cables, mostly from Washington, as if somebody were trying to start a witch hunt. But all we know so far is, and it's serious enough, that a number of Canadians are suspected of communicating important scientific secrets to another power, probably Russia. No one's surprised, as far as I can see. All we heard was the, the news, but we very quickly discovered that uh, two or three of our friends had been picked up. We were rather surprised that we hadn't, I mean, we couldn't see any reason why they should, so we figured that there must have, we must have been equally reprehensible. I remember, you know, meeting the wives of these guys who'd been picked up, and uh, that summer, while they were still incarcerated, I think, um, we had a place again, we still have a place again in Ockley, and some of the, their wives would come down and we would talk about it. It was the time when our relations with the Soviet Union were good, as far as the general public were concerned. We had had these, you know, our, our great Russian allies in the war, which had only just finished a little bit before. And um, the idea that uh, all this spy sort of stuff uh, was more than a great, uh, some sort of PR stunt by the office, the government and the RCMP was rather difficult to swallow. Igor Gazenko defected from the Soviet embassy in Ottawa in September of 1945, taking with him a sheaf of apparently incriminating documents. The RCMP investigated. Prime Minister Mackenzie King conferred nervously with London and Washington. And then, in February of 1946, 13 people, most of whom had been civil servants, were picked up at dawn under the powers of the War Measures Act. They weren't arrested, 
They weren't charged, they weren't allowed counsel, and they weren't allowed to see their families. They were held under the auspices of a royal commission in a police barracks outside Ottawa. Their rooms were brightly lit day and night, and they were interrogated at all hours. Only after the Kellogg-Tashero Royal Commission had found the suspects guilty of treason were any of them charged. Eventually, the Crown prosecuted 22 cases and won 11 convictions, six on charges of violating the Official Secrets Act. But the issue that concerned many people in 1946 was not whether the suspects were guilty, but whether they had any civil rights. Reg Whitaker is a professor of political science at York University and the author of a forthcoming book on the Cold War in Canada. He says that even the existing civil liberties groups were reluctant to defend the rights of the Gazenko prisoners. There were some local civil liberties associations which had existed mainly during the war when people were being interned. And some of those were in fact largely made up of people in the CCF, the predecessor to the NDP, and they were not very interested, not to put too fine a point on it, in pursuing uh, protests about the Gazenko affair. They were really much more interested, I think, in trying to distance themselves from the communists. They were already sniffing the wind and seeing that the Cold War was underway and that it would be a bad thing to be associated with the communists and therefore it might be a bad thing to be too visible protesting the way that apparent communists had been treated. Out of this strategic retreat grew a new organization, the Emergency Committee for Civil Rights. One of the people who was involved in setting it up was Frank Park. He had worked with Bruff McPherson at the Wartime Information Board and then had moved to Toronto himself. In Toronto, everybody I knew was very interested in what was going on at Ottawa. Some of us went to a meeting of the Toronto Civil Liberties Association to see if they would join or initiate a protest against the methods of the Tashiro Kellogg Commission. There was a, a series of discussions took place in which finally one group, namely the Emergency Committee for Civil Rights, decided to go ahead with a newspaper campaign or a campaign of newspaper advertising against the methods of the Tashiro Kellogg Commission. And in that work, Bruff took a very prominent role. That summer, Bruff McPherson toured Western Canada, speaking in Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Regina, Calgary, and Vancouver in defense of the rights of the Gazenko prisoners and he helped to write a series of full-page ads which appeared in the Toronto Star during the spring and summer of 1946. Reg Whitaker thinks that McPherson's activities very nearly cost him his job. As a result of this, uh, there were in fact pressures that were brought to bear on the University of Toronto to do something about this guy, to get rid of him. And I understand well, it's a little hard to get documentary evidence on this, but I understand that Harold Innes, the very famous political economist who was uh, the chair of the political economy department at the University of Toronto, had in effect put his own a job on the line and said that if, uh, if they got rid of McPherson that uh, he would go. And that was a credible threat because he had offers from big American universities like the University of Chicago. And uh, they backed down. And... Uh, the, the very curious thing about this is that Bruff himself appeared not to be very much aware of what had happened. Uh, he once told me 
that Harold Ennis had said around that time that he had had to put in a word for, for him, for McPherson, with somebody higher up. That was all that, that Bruff ever knew about this, and uh, this was an intervention, with, as far as I can see, with the president of the University of Toronto to save McPherson's job. going on in the Soviet Union? What is happening to the Russian experiment? Tonight, in answer to many requests, the CBC brings you a citizens forum on the Soviet Union in theory and practice. Our microphones are set up before an open meeting of the International Relations Club of the University of Toronto, the largest and most... In January of 1949, the, the CBC asked Bruff McPherson to debate with John Garrett, a professor of English at the University of Toronto. The subject was the Soviet Union. Garrett led off with an all-out attack on communism, calling it the greatest political hoax of the 20th century. McPherson responded. I'll say first that in my view, what the Soviets are doing is getting on with the job of reaching the original goal of the 1917 revolution. That goal, as you, Mr. Garrett, have stated it, is a classless society of freedom and plenty after a transitional period of dictatorship. Now, how do I reach my view that the Soviets are moving towards the original goal of equality and freedom? Simply by assuming that it is still a Marxian leadership. I don't see how it could be anything else when they spend so much time teaching Marxian theory in their schools and colleges and adult education. You say that 30 years after the revolution, they have a new inequality. I agree, but I point out that the Marxian plan counted on a period of inequality of income, lasting until they reached a level of production high enough to allow equal enjoyment and a satisfactory level for everyone. This level they have not reached. McPherson went on to praise the Soviet Union for expanding access to education and raising the general standard of living. Then he returned to the justification of one-party rule as a necessary phase in the transition to communism. I agree that they have not yet got the liberties that we value most highly. But I point out that they were not promised and did not expect full liberty of opposition or full freedom of speech. They knew this was impossible as long as counter-revolution could be expected. The point is that these restrictions will not be needed when the basis for full socialist equality has been reached for then there won't be any danger of counter-revolution. In the meantime, the vast majority of them have the freedoms they value most, the positive freedom to make something of themselves, which means social security, education, culture, and meaningful work. And they have a wide degree of freedom of criticizing the actual administration and personnel of the factory and of the town hall. So on both these things, equality and liberty, I see them moving along the lines they had charted, and I see no reason why they cannot reach their goal. McPherson's presentation to the International Affairs Club was an extremely thorough, carefully argued defense of Soviet communism. He even justified Stalin's notorious 1935 purge 
on the grounds that it was a real and necessary method of uprooting counter-revolution. These views were not just an aberration. McPherson believed that the Soviet Union had as much right as the liberal capitalist states to be called democratic. He assessed Soviet society in the same unsentimental way as he assessed liberal society, as a trade-off between freedom and equality. Both would be possible, he believed, only under conditions of abundance. The West had chosen freedom and paid the price in terms of horrendous inequalities of wealth during its Industrial Revolution. If the Soviet Union were now choosing to trade political freedom for greater equality, McPherson was not going to condemn them. In 1953, Brough McPherson published his first book. It was called Democracy in Alberta, and it examined the farmers' movement and the social credit movement in that province from the 1920s to the 1940s. The book was a pioneering attempt to apply Marxism to the study of Canadian society. McPherson's hope was to show that class analysis was still, as he says, the most penetrating basis for the understanding of political behavior. Bill Lease. McPherson did try in that book to carry out a program he set for himself in the late 30s and early 40s, which was to change his discipline by showing the interrelationship between political ideas on the one hand and what he called concrete political facts on the other. So what he was going to do was to develop a, a brand of political science as an academic enterprise that would bring the discussion of political ideology and the, and the crucial questions about socialism versus capitalism right into the discussion of, say, political institutions. Instead of separating, say, political theory and government and so on, bring them together and show um, how what are real, thought to be merely questions about ideas really are questions about the very substance of political life. Lease thinks that democracy in Alberta failed to realize McPherson's ambitions for it because the facts wouldn't fit his preconceived categories. Others have estimated the book more highly, claiming, I think rightly, that McPherson's approach yields real insight into the character of agrarian populism, then and now. But there is one compelling piece of evidence in favor of Lease's view that the book was essentially a false start. Democracy in Alberta was McPherson's one and only foray into empirical political science. Subsequently, McPherson became what Lease calls an epic theorist, a term he borrows from the American political scientist Sheldon Woolen. Epic theory is the attempt to boil an entire social system down to its essential principles. It's what Hobbes and Marx and Plato do, and henceforward what McPherson will do as well. He never again writes a book which deals with the interplay of political ideas and political institutions. He turns instead to epic theory, uh, which is represented best in the uh, book of nine years later, Possessive Individualism, but everything thereafter is, in my view, fundamentally the same. It's the epic theory approach. It's basically concentrating on the dialectic of political ideas with, with some 
of its impacts on political institutions, but it, but those impacts are always very sketchily worked out, uh, not much in detail, nothing like what was attempted in Democracy Alberta. So I think the evidence is clear that uh, this was something he set out to do early on. He carried it out. It failed. He gave it up. At the same time as McPherson was working on democracy in Alberta, he was also developing a very different line of research, political thought in 17th century England. McPherson's first article on Thomas Hobbes was published in 1945, and portraits of Hobbes and John Locke hung above his desk in his study. He also had a particular interest in the political ideas of the Levellers, a Puritan sect active at the time of the English Civil War. In the early 1950s, the McPherson family, which by then included three children, went on sabbatical to Oxford. Brough's 17th century studies were already well advanced, and he met a kindred spirit in historian Christopher Hill. I found him absolutely fascinating on 17th century political theory. My job's teaching 17th century history, and we clicked on that because I'm interested in the history of ideas, and he was interested in the political background to ideas, so that, that fitted very well. We each, I think, stimulated each other in a way, and he used to ask me a lot of awkward questions about the levelers, and he used to give me all sorts of exciting ideas about the way levelers were thinking, which, you know, wasn't my line of country until I talked to him. He was terribly good at asking questions that historians hadn't answered about the ideas his people held. If I were to be absolutely frank, he has been criticized in some quarters for being a bit too rigid in some of his answers. And I think he was so philosophically minded that he tended to make more rational sense out of 17th century ideas than perhaps the people made in the 17th century, made them more consistent thinkers, I think. But he was very interesting and made us all think a very great deal harder about their way of thinking, and so started up all sorts of marvelous questions. That's what he was really good at. The result of these questions was McPherson's masterpiece, The Political Theory of Possessive Individualism. Published in 1962, the book treats 17th century political thought as the expression of an emerging capitalist society. McPherson found in thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke the beginnings of a consistent philosophy, which he calls possessive individualism. This new philosophy saw society as a market, a war of everyone against everyone, Hobbes says, and the individual as a private owner of himself and his abilities competing in this market. Possession in such a society was the only security and the only freedom, hence possessive individualism. The book made a major impact in academic circles. Christopher Hill thinks that part of the reason was the breadth of McPherson's scholarship. It was his combination of knowing his history and being a very good analyst of political theory. I mean, most People who wrote about political theory wondered who Hobbes's ancestors were and what his relation to Machiavelli was. And, but he hadn't been related as closely and as skillfully and with knowledge as Braff did to the society in which he lived. And that goes not only for Hobbes, but for Harrington and the Levellers and Locke as well. I think it was this whole 
interdisciplinary approach of assuming that you can't understand the, the ideas unless you understand the society which gave rise to them. It's elementary once the point has been made, but it had escaped an awful lot of people who wrote about political theory and people who wrote about history hadn't, I think, fully grasped the relevance of the ideas of the political thinkers. I think he brought the two together in a, a way that was new. Possessive individualism was a real contribution to scholarship on the 17th century. But it was also something more. It created a new archetype, which could be used to analyze and correct contemporary society. And more than that, says Bill Lees, it was also the moment at which Bruff McPherson discovered his own distinctive voice. By voice, I mean a, a unique and appropriate mode of expression for the ideas that he wanted to express, something that would comp combine a personal style with an interpretive thrust. Now, he found that in the political theory of possessive individualism, and thereafter, he never lost it. With the concept of possessive individualism, he found something that would express in a concept his ideological standpoint. It is a notion that is both descriptive and critical. He can use this concept to talk about Hobbes and Locke in a way that's close enough to the sources that the other scholars who don't share this approach have to engage him, often on his own terms. He found, in short, the way to express that unity that he had in his mind from the very beginning in a way that would force his discipline to confront his ideas. He did not do that in Democracy Alberta. He did it with possessive individualism. It's thrilling, in a sense, if you're a university academic to see that, the difference between the two books. The political theory of possessive individualism made quite a splash when it was published. It is rare for a book to change the intellectual landscape, George Licktime wrote in his review for The New Statesman. But the unexpected has happened, and the shock waves are still being absorbed. Possessive individualism remained McPherson's master concept for the rest of his career. He joked about it in the introduction to his very last book, published in 1983. The critic who remarked that I never write about anything except possessive individualism, he said, will find here no need to retract. Tomorrow night at this time, I'll examine these later writings, in which McPherson fleshed out his critique and his prescriptions for contemporary society. And I'll look at his role in university affairs, particularly the McPherson Commission, which transformed the undergraduate curriculum at the University of Toronto in the 1960s. On Ideas Tonight, C.B. McPherson, A Retrospective, Part 1. The program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk. Production Assistance by Gail Brownell and Brian Hickey. Special thanks to Ken Pewley at CBC Radio Archives and to Kay McPherson for her cooperation and permission to quote from unpublished papers. The producer was Marilyn Powell. We've prepared a printed transcript of this two-part series. It costs $5.00. And you can get a copy by writing to C.B. McPherson, CBC Enterprises, Box 500, 
Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Please enclose a cheque or money order for $5, and do remember that delivery takes at least eight weeks. Tomorrow night, the second and final programme on C.B. McPherson. Please join us then. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.